This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is March 8th, mid-afternoon. Lots going on. There seems to be kind of a bear rally. When we're looking at October, S&P still up 11% from the lowest, but, you know, the 3% year to date, and that's gone down sizably over the last week or so. Uh, there's a lot to make out of this. It's big term in lights of Powell's comments. Um, L.L. Reigns mentioned that he thinks that the Fed is kind of dragging us into a recession. But then, then there's been a lot of analysis out of Credit Suite that it's like, look, this is Looks a lot like, you know, whether you're looking at the Copic curve and some technical analysis, if you're looking at 10-month sum with the 14-month moving averages, this looks kind of historically average. And if you're also looking at 200 moving days, um, yeah, we, I mean, we're just seeing what is kind of to be expected. But, Tim, I know you've got – you just wrote a blog on, you know, the Godot recession. You talked a lot about how people are surprised, but, you know, at the same time – there's a lot more liquidity with things like 8.7% colas and top 20% savings yep. earners and everything else. Yep. So let's talk about the market. Let's talk about your blog yep. and let's kind of get into it. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, well, first you mentioned Powell and yeah, Powell who has really done a poor job of sounding hawkish, even when everybody knows he's trying to sound hawkish. He, he, he got his statement right yesterday. I mean, when the, when the fed comes out and says, the date is definitely hotter than we thought coming out of our last meeting. That qualifies as hawkish. And he, and he gave every other indication in his statement that uh, we're more afraid of going uh, of not going far enough. That would be the real risk or of cutting too soon. So he, he, he made his statement that it's going to be higher and it's going to be for longer. Very, very clear. And you've had the market reaction to that. You got the twos at five or above five here today. Um, you know, and, and look, the fact is, is they just haven't made that much progress on wage growth. I, I, I get it. I talk about constantly how the, the the employment picture is a lagging indicator. In many, in some cases, it's a coincident indicator, but mostly it's a lagging indicator. And while people love to make fun of the ADP payrolls because they're all over the place, their job isn't to predict what the non-farm payroll is going to be. It's actually a huge data source. And they're still seeing seven plus percent, seven point two percent wage inflation. As long as as, the, as there's those kind of numbers, and the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker is up there. As long as there's no those kind of numbers, the Fed isn't cutting. Uh, and there's just too much demand. Like, shockingly enough, five billion or I'm sorry, five trillion dollars worth of federal stimulus and maybe five trillion dollars of monetary stimulus was a bit too much. Uh, and through PPP and through savings at the high end. Uh, there is still too much liquidity. Well, it's been drained out maybe of the bottom 80% of the economy, and you're really starting to see that stress, whether it's uh, you know in the used car area or credit card debt getting up towards a trillion dollars at 20% average cost. Like you're seeing the stress at the low end, you're not yet seeing it at the high end. Uh, and I think it really starts to get ugly when you do get into the phase of this recession and we're going into a recession where you start losing jobs. And I think that really is only a matter of time. You know, housing is in a recession, orders manufacturing is in a recession. 
the S&P 500 profits in the fourth quarter was down. It was down more in NASDAQ. It would have been down more for the S&P if it wasn't for energy. Those are the three things that have to happen before you finally get to uh, the employment recession, and it's coming. And we're seeing some of this stuff in the property value markets, right? I mean, you have housing is 45 trillion dollars worth of value. Uh, I mean, mortgage rates really kind of fluctuate more so with CPI and core inflation than they do with an overnight lending rate. So, you know, we've seen obviously mortgage rates go down a little bit from highs of seven now that you can get them five, eight, six, that sort of thing. But we do see other cracks that are definitely occurring within you know yeah. property values and it's become more of a buyer's market than a seller's. Yeah. Well, you got back down to six. You're yeah. Now with the most recent moves, uh, you're back up towards seven. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, mortgage, you know, look, there's, there was a, there's, there's a chart in the piece that I put out this week, the Godot recession, where I show where permits are and permits have rolled over. Builders realize that this is not going to work at 7% mortgage rates. So permits roll over. Well, construction still going on is still at those highs. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there any question in your mind that that construction activity is going to fall along with permits? I mean, the historical correlation is is incredibly high it, for good reason. It will stay that high. Uh, so you are going to see uh, that part, the employment part. And, and, you know, you're talking about more than three million jobs and there's big knock on effects to housing beyond housing. Just look at the truck market. Uh, I know that going into the great financial crisis, the direction on home sales, on new home sales was highly, highly correlate, correlated with uh, light vehicle, light truck sales. You know, all of the people that uh, that are in housing, but in the aftermarket of housing. When housing gets weak and housing turnover gets weak, it has big knock-on effects to the economy. I, 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 we are better off than we were in the great financial uh, uh, crisis with housing. People own more of their homes, equity is higher, and they have much, much more of them have 30-year mortgages. But the the collapse in activity itself is a meaningful drag on the economy. I still believe as much as we're better off than we were in 08, the economy follows housing. The two are not going to separate for long. And, and yeah. just the other side of it, as you say, pricing is coming off. Pricing is off about 5% nationally. That's going to continue. I, I think that the lack of supply, you know, people who are in my situation, like a, a ton of mortgage holders, they can't they can't move because their mortgage is so cheap that they can't live anywhere else more cheaply. They might like to take the equity. I think what might start to happen is you start to see more negative pricing. More people want to get out the door and say, yeah, I can't really let live, live anywhere more cheaply, but I want to take advantage of all this equity that I've got. Yeah, in that graph you're talking about the construction cycle lags. Yeah, it seems like the margin between permits and units under construction is the largest. It's really been since '71. Yeah. I mean, in 2008 they declined lockstep together, but if you're looking at 2021, you've seen, uh, you know, just a lot more construction versus permits. You know, there's complete. Justice. It's just taking longer. Like historically, that lag is like five or six months, and in this cycle, it's clearly longer. And you just wonder if builders aren't sitting on stuff longer. It's not taking longer to get completions because they have a harder time getting, uh, whether it's, you know, white goods or getting labor or construction materials or whatever it is. 
but it that's the worst situation right think about if you're uh think about you're you're a developer and you're doing a bunch of multifamily homes and you and you last year or two years ago you took out a a, a construction loan at three percent well all of a sudden you still own these things the construction loan has come to the end of its term. You've got to refinance these houses, and now you're long all this stuff at an 8 9% cost of capital. That guy is going to be very motivated to move those units. So I, I do think that with all of the housing that is still nearing completion, that stuff is going to have to get sold, and it's going to have to get sold in a hurry, and that'll put pressure. It doesn't affect every MSA. I live in Summit, New Jersey, where there's no real new construction material. There's no new availability. But in the MSAs where there has been a lot of growth, uh, it's going to put a real pressure on prices. And, you know, we saw globally anyways, OECDs improve the outlook uh, marginally, you know, citing food prices are substantially lower than they were at their peaks. And then uh, we've also seen kind of um, a correction in terms of fuel as well. Yeah. Well, a lot of commodity food price food prices are lower uh but finished consumer packaged good prices are not lower there was a stat the other day people think about you know elizabeth warren is screaming at uh at powell the other day saying that you know implying that he's insensitive to poor people uh and powell just looked at it and said what do you want me to do like mm -hmm. yes people are going to lose their jobs but poor people suffer when you have runaway inflation and what i'm talking about is dollar store inflation for food is up 17% year over year. Now we've had some real wage growth, but it hasn't been anywhere near 17%. And if you live in one of those food desert towns where all you got is a dollar general or whatever, uh, your cost of living with food has gone up a whole hell of a lot. The other thing is, look, we had a mild winter. So Europe escaped uh, a real disaster because of the mild winter on, on the energy side. Oil prices have come in, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, but that's taken a lot of pressure off. You got some bigger demand in January, as you said, because of the COLA, perhaps uh, the COLA increase in Social Security going up by 8.7%, 8, 8 and you also had warmer weather. And that warmer weather can meaningfully skew the data in, in the winter. Uh, so we'll see. I, I don't think that I think the I think there's some noise around the trend. And I think that the trend is that the Fed's gonna win. I mean, when the Fed raises by 500 basis points, you are going to have meaningfully slower corporate and consumer activity. If we're wrong about that, then we all need to go back and study and understand economics in a mm -hmm. whole new way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and in terms of fuel, I might as well get into, I mean, the obviously the Russian-Ukrainian war aspect. Uh, Early on, it was obviously issue of supply constraints, and then this conflict caused the biggest geopolitical crisis, at least in the energy market, since the 70s. Um, but that being said, you know, the Europeans have found other buyers. They had an unusually warm winter, and a lot of that has been, you know, natural gas coming from U.S. amongst other Middle Eastern um, and, yeah. and African and Asian countries. Yeah. But, but you know, so nat gas has gotten oversupplied. It sounds like the Haynes, you know, it's it's the Permian and the Haynesville, and it sounds like the Haynesville shale uh, has really oversupplied here over the last few months. Uh, the you know the the tank the the tanks are full in in uh, Europe, so they don't need more immediate LNG cargo. 
ultimately there's more and more LNG capacity. And as you said uh, to me earlier, like the U.S. is really in such a powerful position with having all of that excess LNG, uh, you know, gas capacity and LNG export capacity that it continues to be added. Uh, it's a great position for the United States to be in because the world is going to be needing that gas. Uh, on the oil side, it looks like, you know, Russia's probably going to be down 500,000 to a million. Uh, and they're probably not spending the money on on wells and on resources that they need to sustain uh, their export numbers. So, you know, and, and the I think the EI, the the EIA, I think, is at 102 million barrels of demand by the end of the year. Uh, so as Russia oil comes off the market and India is certainly sucking up a lot of that. Uh, and then you also have the oil shale uh, getting to be a little bit less productive. I mean, there was some interesting comment commentary out of Pioneer and some other uh, companies saying that, look, we're getting to exhaustion on tier one wells and it's more tier two, tier three stuff. That's more that's less productive. The whole world in the United States has really benefited from the whole shale revolution and how much uh, oil has been added uh, to, uh, to to sort of global supplies through the shale. And a less productive shale going forward uh, is going to be meaningful to the overall supply picture. So there are certainly the energy analysts that I follow, and, uh, and I think it's the consensus view, is that unless there's a real collapse in demand in the second half of the year, we're going to be really constrained trying to supply 102 million barrels a day with you know most of OPEC plus getting further and further away from being able to hit their quotas, Russia largely uh, being impacted, and then shale may be getting less productive. That keeps me super, super bullish on energy overall, not just necessarily the commodity price, but the energy companies, and I know I'm a broken record on this, they are acting as if they are a, like a cigarette companies that have declining volumes and they're just returning all the cash and not investing in resources. There's no prospect of that changing. And I think it will be interesting to see what happens with this spring offensive. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of fighting. Bakhmut looks like a World War One hell zone, um, but it's been a slog for a few months. But with a lot more training and with a lot more NATO weapon supplies, you know, the expectation is Ukrainians might make a counteroffensive here in the next couple of months. Uh, 18% of the country is still occupied. Taking over Crimea would be, you know, insanely difficult task. But you know, recapturing a bunch of the east might, you know, yeah, gain some yeah. more momentum to something. Yeah, I don't know. You know, there's been some stuff recently about that they're really running low on artillery. That mm -hmm. the amount of artillery going out is less than what is coming in every day, and the supply chains are getting a little thin on supplying adequate artillery. So that gives me some pause as to whether or not they can achieve a offensive. Uh, but the Russians just continue. There, there's, there's no let up in how inept that they appear to be. And you hear, you hear comments from the Wagner group that they're not even happy with the Russians themselves and they're providing so much of the forces. So as mm -hmm. you hear the Wagner group people say negative things about the, the Russians, like you've got a real divided force. It just, it's just, I just, from my perspective, it's impossible to predict what Putin should do because 
you're, you're, you're going to try to make an intuitive guess on what would benefit him. But this whole thing has been a bad idea. This this whole thing has been incredibly ill-planned, and he had no idea that his forces were as as wildly inept as they've as they've proven to be. Uh, so, guessing what he's going to do, guessing how he tries to save face, I, I I just I have no idea, and I think that the whole world needs to look at it the same way, which is you hope for the best, but there's no you know. Certainty is unwarranted, as to the chairman Powell would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially a couple of weeks ago, the chatter was potential coup in Moldova that opens up yeah. another front, and then from old Moldova they can invade Western Ukraine. But that would just seem to be the last thing you'd want to do if you were Russia. But yeah, sometimes you just got to double down. I mean, it's just the level of rationality. You know, when you're gone this far, is I don't know. Yeah, these who knows? Who knows? There's no guessing what that what that guy's gonna do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as OECD numbers are looking good for much of Europe, um, there's some severe Brexit regrets in the United Kingdom right now. Um, you know, a YouGov survey published showed that 53% against the uh, respondents said that the UK was wrong to leave versus 32% who still believed it was the right call. You know, there's uh, people have postulated that by 2030, the United Kingdom could actually be poorer than Poland. Uh, you know, so there might be a severe economic crisis, not to mention there's been few prime ministers within the last few years, you know, from the Conservative Party. And there just seems to be a ton of political turnover as well. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you mentioned the polls like Northern Ireland has done is not part is part of the EU. Uh, so they're not they're not part of the whole Brexit thing. Brexit thing and it's created some issues. But like you go to Ireland and you meet all kinds of Poles and and Eastern Europeans and Russians who are tech workers and have advanced degrees and so forth. And that is good for society. That drives productivity. That drives growth. And you don't have that with with Brexit. I mean, if you want to hear somebody really talk about the stupidity of Brexit, you got to listen to Adam Posen, who's from the, who's the, I think the chief economist at the Peterson uh, Institute. Uh, And he just, he talks about how much of a self-inflicted wound it is, especially on the inflation side. I mean, they have a skilled worker problem uh, like you have in much of Europe in the United States, but they've made it worse. Uh, their input prices on average are worse than you have to deal with in the rest of the EU. So look, it's it's a microcosm of a bigger picture, which is that deglobalization and protectionism is bad and it's inflationary. Now, there's some protectionism like the IRA in the United States and the CHIPS Act that I think are righteous and necessary, especially from a from a national security issue and our sort of our sort of global technology battle against China. Um, but even if you think it's right, you still have to admit that it's inflationary. Mm-hmm. And and what they've done with Brexit is really at a really bad time, uh, created a situation where they have less ability uh, to deal with and control inflation. And, you know, I think you're going to be in a long, ugly, stagflationary period in the UK. Yeah, and they can bring up things like they'll be poorer than Poland, and that's partially shows the downturn in the British economy, but it's also shows what's happened in Poland over since the 80s, when you have the stereotypical Polish electrician and Polish plumber coming into the Shanghai 
that created tons of remittances back home. And then a lot of those guys moved back and started their own companies, um, yeah. you know, putting uh, Poland on a much better post, um, you know, Soviet collapse footing. So, yeah, you look at the Czech Republic, you look at mm -hmm. uh, Estonia and Latvia and those countries yeah. like they've done really well. They had this educated workforce. I mean, think about what could, could have happened with Russia. I was at Morgan Stanley a million years ago when they started a Russia ETF. And the old legend Barton Biggs was out there pitching it, and he was talking about how they have this incredible opportunity um, with Gorbachev and with this with this educated workforce that they had this ability that if they could embrace capitalism and democracy, that you know you really could have a great growth story. But if you don't pair that 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 uh, if you don't pair that educated society with capitalism and democracy, you just lose those people. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that has continued to happen in Russia, whereas if you can get out, you're getting out, not just because you don't want to go get killed in the Ukraine, but because you just have, you, you want economic opportunity. Uh, so, so, you know, people, young people are still flooding out of Russia, and we talk about demographic issues a lot. Nobody has got a worse demographic problem uh, than Russia does. Right. Yeah. They, they can't afford to have yeah. a brain drain right now. Um, I mean, I saw a stat the other day that mortality in Russia is down five years, average mortality. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they are, oh, it was comparable to Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this was after decades of referring to Russia as a brick country. And yeah. I mean, a big part yeah. of the reason why people love Putin is because he had 20 years of increasing social metrics across Russian society, and they've yeah. thrown that all away. Um, yeah. They really have. So that's yeah, incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, anything we overlooked this week, Tim? You know, not to stay negative, but the, you know, the rhetoric out of China is really bad. I mean, if, if you look at um, some of the functionaries of Xi and then the commentary from Xi himself, you know, there's this there is this kind of language of, of victimhood. Uh, and I think that this idea that he's he's preparing his population for it's not my fault. It's the West. The West is isolating us. The West is doing this. And we have no other option. I, I just I think it's very scary rhetoric. As I've said before, if you really do start to see military action or blockade type action or anything like that in Taiwan in the streets of Taiwan, I mean, you, you thought you had supply chain issues with COVID, uh, you know, without semiconductors, and it, it, and Taiwan makes all kinds of semiconductors that go into everything. Uh, and if, if you really start to see uh, aggressive action from China in towards Taiwan and they can't export semis, you know, global manufacturing just screeches to a halt. Uh, that's not a, that's not an exaggeration. So I, I, I still think that we have to be watching very carefully uh, what the rhetoric looks like out of, out of Xi as it, as it relates to the West and specifically towards Taiwan. Yeah. Well, additionally, there seems to be a bipartisan bill, you know, as it relates to TikTok and and then, you know, um, seems to be very popular on both sides. But the, th the thing is, if we ban a platform TikTok and then you have a whole generation of influencers who are using, uh, you know, they're using proxy servers to inevitably, you know, get on TikTok again. I just don't think that looks much different than the Chinese firewall on Facebook. 
Yeah, right. uh, I mean, Facebook's right. banned in China, but no shortage of people have Facebook. And I don't know if the states will look a whole lot different. Yeah. Huh. yeah. In whatever form it takes, the protectionism is going tit for tat. I mean, it start going, you go all the way back to the to the Trump uh, tariffs on China. Uh, it just keeps going in one direction and nobody is going to back down and politicians on the left and the right in the United States and probably no different uh, in China are going to want to look tough on China. Right? Mm -hmm. You can't afford not to look tough on China. So everybody is going to support uh, all of these very kind of protectionist type bills. And I'm not speaking to whether or not you you know it, it makes sense or not. I don't I don't understand the whole TikTok thing as well as I probably should. No, I just know it's. I'm not a not a frequent user of TikTok. No, no, there's been a lot of <laughs> gas station dances that have made 19 year olds millions of dollars, but. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I got a funny 18 year old who hasn't made any money on TikTok. I'm a little disappointed in her. Right. Yeah. It's going to be a retirement. <laughs> it's, it's a job. I think we missed our opportunity. She's heading off to college. She's probably too old now to really reap the TikTok millions. Right. Yeah. It's their little babies <laughs> that these days. <laughs> 14's the cutoff. Um, all right. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, thanks for all our listeners and subscribers. We'll be back next week. I know we took a little bit of break with Bison and everything, but, um, you know, we'll be back to a regular schedule uh, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.